It is such a privilege for me to be able to talk to you this morning. I, I got to pinch myself every morning realizing I get to spend the bulk of my day with 800 good friends like you. I, I don't know why God has allowed me that privilege, but it is something I will never take for granted. And I'm grateful for my good buddy Dave Maddox for giving me this opportunity. And Dave, I assure you, I don't take this opportunity for granted. How many of you are single? Can I see your hands? No kidding. All right. How many of you know for certain, there isn't a smidgen of doubt in your mind, you know for certain that you have the gift of singleness? Let me see your hand. <laughs> One. All right. Um, oh, two. We got two. Charlie Crowfoot, I should have anticipated. Yeah, I should have anticipated that one. How many of you want, pray daily, that you will get the gift of singleness? All right. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let me welcome you today to a single celebration. Huh? What do you think? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in honor of the Word of God, would you stand with me, please? A single celebration and subtitle for this one, Charlie Crowfoot, this is for you. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. Paul said this, Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Verse 7. Yet I wish that all men, that's generic, men and women. I wish that all men and women were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Let's pray together and we will share together a single celebration. We're grateful, Father, that we can hold in our hands a book that is the blueprint for an abundant, fulfilling life. I pray for the opportunity we have now to gather around the Word of God that you will speak in a powerful way to each one. We commit this time to you. Be honored and glorified in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me tell you what's going on. When you come to chapter 7 in the flow of the book of 1 Corinthians, you have reached a turning point moment. First six chapters, Paul, as you will learn in New Testament survey, if you haven't already, Paul is addressing problems, major problems, that he identified very clearly, very specific, that were happening within the Corinthian church. When you get to chapter 7, the whole tone of the book changes. The key phrase is that first phrase, concerning the things about which you wrote. And from chapter 7 to the end of the chapter, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthian believers had asked him in the form of a letter. It is not surprising that the first two questions they ask, oh, it's not laid out in a question and answer format. You have to kind of deduce from what Paul said. You have to kind of deduce what the questions are. 
But it isn't too difficult. The first two questions they asked were these. Paul, what do you think about sex? And Paul, what do you think about singleness? Major confusion. Because in the Corinthian assembly, major carnal place on the planet at that time, these two subjects were very much discussed and debated and much confusion reigned in the hearts of the believers there. Because of the carnality within Corinth, people who came to Christ out of a carnal, immoral background, some of them said, I'll never have anything to do with marriage or sex again. Other people in the church said, no, they're both created by God. They're both great. Threatened to split the church. Major confusion. First two issues they asked Paul about. What do you believe about sex? What do you believe about singleness? Do you realize that in that culture it was not uncommon for a guy to marry and divorce and marry again up to 20 times? Can you imagine that? 20 times. If I was living in that culture, I'm telling you, if you wanted a lucrative job, a divorce lawyer would be the place to go, I guess. 20 times. Immorality was absolutely rampant. You know that from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul said this, don't be deceived, neither. Now listen to this. Grocery list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he said, and such were some of you. So all of those categories of rebellion rampant in Corinthian carnal culture. Then for good measure, women's lib was completely out of control. The all-American Corinthian woman, if you saw a poster of her and stuck it on your wall, you would see her probably bare-breasted, spear in her hand, helmet on her head, spearing a wild boar. That was the all-American Corinthian woman. So, Paul had a lot of scrambled eggs he had to try to unscramble, and so from 1 Corinthians 7 to the end of the book, he answers many questions, the first two of which are, Paul, what do you think about sex? And secondly, Paul, what do you think about singleness? We'll take them in that order, all right? Paul, what do you think about sex? Two simple thoughts. None of this will be a news bulletin to you. We're going to rapidly make our way down to the fourth, the fourth thought shared in this chapter. But for now, because they asked about it, we'll deal with it. What do you think about sex? Paul said two things. You may want to write them down. Number one, Paul said, regarding sex outside of marriage. Ready? Write this down. Three-word phrase. No way, Jose. All right, sex outside of marriage. No way, Jose. Or if your name isn't Jose, Jim, whatever. No way, all right? In verse 1, he answered the age-old question that I have been asked a thousand times. How far in dating is too far? Physically, how far can I go? And he answered the question. Concerning anything about which you wrote, here it is. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. In that statement, sex outside of marriage, no way, Jose. And in fact, he drew a very clear line of demarcation to help you and me make choices about how far physically in dating we can go. Gentlemen, you're not to touch a woman. Now, does that mean you can't hold hands? Does that mean that if a mosquito lands on her shoulder and you brush it off, you have violated a biblical imperative? The word touch is a very specific word. The word touch in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used three times. 
It's used in Genesis 20, it's used in Ruth 2, it's used in Proverbs 6, and each time that word is used, Greek translation of the Old Testament, same word that appears in 1 Corinthians 7, it means to touch in a sexually stimulating manner. To touch in a sexually stimulating manner. Gentlemen, it is good for a man not to touch a woman in a sexually stimulating manner. I've heard more camp talks on this subject than I can count, the bulk of which will say to you that when it comes to specific answers to the question, how far physically can I go in dating, the Bible is simply silent. That is incorrect. The Bible is specifically verbal, not silent. And the answer, to just coin it in a phrase, is this. Once you get turned on, you have gone too far. Once you get turned on, you have gone too far. The whole, the whole point of this morning, frankly, is liberation. I want to liberate you. I want to turn you on and set you free, all right? Free from some burdens that some of you have been called upon to bear. One of which has to do with this. Why did God set the guideline at that point? If you get turned on, you've gone too far. Why didn't God give us a specific list of possible activities, some of which are acceptable, some of which are unacceptable? Well, the answer is that we are put together somewhat differently, and things that may turn one person on may not turn on another person. And if he did draw a line at a specific activity, depravity being what it is, we would rush up to that line and then be ever tempted to step over the line far better to give a generic answer. If you get turned on, you've gone too far. Easy to understand, easy to apply, and the whole reason God drew the line there is to free you and free me from unnecessary pressure. I don't have to tell you, you're big boys and girls now, I don't have to tell you that once the physical dimension of dating becomes the focal point, guilt, breakdown of communication, all of that comes in to put an encumbrance and a burden upon the relationship and in many cases will snap it completely right? God wants you to be free from that. The physical dimension to dating is to be non-existent. The beauty of dating is for two people, members of the opposite gender, to get to know one another as human being individuals, to explore the heart and the person of one another without the pressure of exploring the body and all of the guilt that comes along with that. Some of you have experienced the reality of all communication coming to a screeching halt the minute your hands began to take over. To free you from that, Paul makes it very clear. It's good for a man not to touch a woman in a sexually stimulating manner. The principle is repeated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul said in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, and then he defines it more specifically, that you not defraud one another in this case. And the word defraud, same idea, to stir up an appetite that cannot be righteously satisfied. In other words, this is God's will for you, that you not touch one another in a sexually stimulating manner, and if you do at that point, identify it and back off to keep that pressure out of the relationship. So, sex outside of marriage, the answer is no way, Jose. All right? Number two, relative to 
the whole issue of sex. Sex inside of marriage. Four-word answer. Write this down. Sex inside marriage. Go for it, baby. All right? Sex inside marriage. Go for it, baby. He not only gives permission, he commands it. Listen to it. Verse 3. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. The sexual relationship is set up by Paul as a duty, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. Likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Why were they doing that? Well, in that culture, when a person was immoral with multiple partners and then came to Christ, there were well-meaning, sincere people so ashamed of their background, when they came to Christ, they said, that's it. Out of love and devotion to God, I will never engage in a sexual relationship ever again, marriage or otherwise. We are, after all, people of extremes once in a while, are we not? And there were people who, within the cozy confines of marriage, refused to sleep with one another, husband and wife, given their immoral background. Paul said, don't deprive one another except by agreement, for a time, and Paul probably had in mind a short time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex inside of marriage, go for it. Hallelujah. We finally found one command, no problem obeying, right? We got that one down there are three reasons and i'll just duck these in for future reference three reasons as to why probably this was included in the bible for you and me i've already hinted at one of them even in our culture there are people whose entire exposure to the whole subject of sexuality has been a negative one the church unfortunately in some cases contributes to that Oftentimes, you will hear messages that cry out against the evils and the dangers and the possible problems that can result from a sexual relationship, never balancing it out with exalting the beauty of it as God's given wedding present to the human race, which is really what it is. Sex is God's wedding present to the human race something given on that wedding night to two people who love him and love one another to be celebrated for a lifetime. And that'll beat any toaster or set of towels you'll get, I promise. God's wedding present to the human race. But oftentimes we don't exalt it as that. We simply decry the evils of it. True? And so there are some people whose whole orientation is negative. Sex has become a dirty word. They've seen it exploited in movies and on television screens throughout their lifetime some people grow up in an abusive situation victims of incest or rape and that only compounds the problem and reinforces the negative perception and there are some people who will carry that into marriage thinking because it has been ingrained in their in their minds that there is something inherently evil about this so what a liberating thought husbands and wives regardless of your background how moral or immoral you may have been how tragic your or traumatic your circumstances may have been, this is a beautiful thing to be celebrated by a husband and wife. You have a duty to one another. Don't deprive each other. That's one reason. Another reason that Paul includes this in here, I believe, is because there are some people who have a differing intensity of sex drive. 
Again, we're just filing this away for future reference. Sometimes a 9-volt battery will marry a 220 circuit. Know what I mean? And there have been, and I, this is something I've only encountered in limited counseling that I've done with married people. Very limited. My, my heart's passion is you, not, not um, adults necessarily. I'm always asked the question, don't you have any friends your own age? Who needs them? I got you, right? I mean, that's all the friends a man could ever need or want. But I have done limited counseling in this area, and I have met on occasion individuals who have a very low intensity when it comes to their sex drive married to someone who's ready to go at a moment's notice. And the thought is there must be something wrong with him or her. Has he flooded his mind with pornography when he was a kid? I mean, what's the problem here? And so Paul is again liberating an individual in that situation by saying you have a duty to one another. Not only do you have a duty, you have no right over your own body. When you got married, Paul is saying, you gave your body as a gift to your husband or wife to be enjoyed at will. So don't deprive one another, but fulfill one another. And given the volatile, explosive nature of this whole topic, Satan uses it so often, as you well know, as a foothold to destroy an individual in order to not allow Satan to tempt a person beyond his ability to control it. Come together. Fulfill your duty to one another. And then a third reason that Paul addresses this is because for some, sex has become a very powerful manipulative weapon to be used by a husband or a wife to get something out of the other partner and to withhold if he or she doesn't get what she wants. And so in order to not take a precious gift given to us by God and reduce it to a manipulative device, Paul points out that you have an obligation to one another to come together. So, Paul, given our immoral Corinthian carnality, what do you think about sex, Paul? What do I think? Outside of marriage, no way, Jose. Inside of marriage, go for it, baby. All right? God's wedding present to the human race. I won't develop it beyond that point. We had a speaker in chapel last year who dealt with the subject very adequately. And I would encourage you, if you have any doubts about that, to pick up the tape. You know what I'm talking about, right? Josh McDowell was here and... After that chapel, I slept on a couch two months myself. I was scared. The guy scared the bejeebers out of me. So if you have any questions about that whole topic, you pick that one up, all right? Now let's move on to the real subject at hand, the whole issue of singleness, okay? Singleness. Paul points out two things about the issue of singleness, which from your raised hands, I would surmise applies to most of you. First thing is this. Singleness does bring with it a tempting situation. I will be quick to acknowledge that. The downside to being single is that you are forced to live, given your circumstances, in a tempting situation. Paul says in verse 2, Because of immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Yes, it is true. The sexual temptation in your life, you may think, is intensified because you do not have the normal 
God-given outlet of marriage to satisfy your sexual desire. Let me point out to you that while singleness is a tempting situation, so is marriage. If you think, those of you who struggle with lust, that the day you get married, your struggle with lust is over, you are in, my friend, for a very disillusioning reality. Because it is simply true, you and I are even tempted more by what we have experienced. Therefore, living in intimacy with a husband or a wife only causes you and me to experience sexual temptation in the sense that we are tempted more by what we have experienced. And the wandering eyes and the cries of the flesh do not stop when you put a gold wedding band on your finger. So while it may be true that you will feel yourself from time to time bemoaning the fact that you are single and therefore having to resist moment by moment sexual temptation because you do not have the outlet of marriage to satisfy it, I assure you that will not come to an end on your honeymoon. If you do not learn how to control your sexual desire now, before you get married, it may be even more difficult to control it after marriage. It's always been curious to me that the majority of guys that I know, not that I know a lot of them, but I know a, a few who have had affairs, the majority of them were married men. Married men. We have heard mentioned from this pulpit on more than one occasion the seriousness of men in leadership in Christian circles in our country who have exploded and detonated and destroyed their ministries because of sexual immorality, the overwhelming majority of whom are married men. So if marriage was the, the answer to sexual temptation for the rest of your life, simply not true. And that will become a raw reality about 24 hours after you get married. So, it is a tempting situation. Yes. But so is marriage. And I would add this thought. And now this is personal opinion. I'm giving you an editorial comment. It is no mystery to you that immorality is rampant in the church, right? If we booted everybody out of our churches who was sexually immoral, it would be interesting to see who would show up on a Sunday morning after we cleaned house. This thing has become like wildfire out of control. A reason for that that I'd like to drop into your thinking may be this. I believe in many cases the church has been wrong in placing pressure upon you to postpone marriage. Our message to you has always been to wait. Wait. We lay out all of these guidelines that have to be fulfilled before a person gets married. Complete your college education, complete your seminary education, be well established in a career, be financially independent, own your own home. I mean, it could be a number of things that we lay on you and slap on you. A good friend of mine spends a bulk of his time doing premarital counseling. And I asked him one time, what is your goal when you meet with a couple who wants to get married? When you engage in premarital counseling, what is your goal? Do you know what he told me? My goal is to do everything I can to talk them out of the marriage. If I cannot talk them out of the marriage, then I will assume it is God's will for them to get married. 
but I will do everything I can to talk them out of the marriage. Think about that. Just the sheer position that this person holds as a leader in his church, if that's the perspective that he takes, and they, this young teachable couple, are hearing this from a respected individual, that could be enough to cause them to put the thing on the back burner or break the relationship completely. I believe that we have been in error in many cases in trying to pressure you to postpone getting married. It is, after all, the Apostle Paul who in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 said these words, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. It's good if you remain single. But, verse 9, Gentlemen, for some of you, this will be your closet life verse, right? I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Oh, I've already preached so many times. Sexual gratification is no reason to get married. It's not what Paul said. That is one of one of a constellation of viable reasons to get married. Not the only one, not necessarily the most important one, but certainly one to be considered. Gentlemen, if you struggle intensely with this issue, or women, if you do as well, the Bible encourages you to get married. Why? For it is better to marry than to burn. But some of us, rather than helping you out in this, we just heap more wood on the fire and tell you to postpone it, put it off, put it off. I would suggest to you that there are three things that you ought to consider when you're thinking about getting married. Yes, I do believe parental support is important. I would never never counsel anybody to violate the wishes of mom and dad in getting married against their will. So parental support is important. Yes, financial support is important. You're going to have to pay some grocery bills. That does not mean that you need $20,000 in the bank. But it does mean that as you come together, you work out what you believe to be your minimum bottom line to survive financially in this economy, and as you pool your resources, are you able to pay the weekly bills? Who of us is financially independent? If that was the guideline, I couldn't be married yet. And then thirdly, take an objective look at your station in life and realize in light of your station in life the pressures you will face married your students you got married tomorrow being a student would place pressure on your marriage but not necessarily does that mean you should postpone it simply a matter of counting the cost and determining if you can live with that pressure and if you determine that you can fine so this is my humble opinion i don't have chapter and verse for this but simply to say to you that I believe that in many cases we unnecessarily put a burden upon you to postpone marriage for years while all the while you have a seething volcano erupting in your system. And Paul said, look, if you are burning, I'd like you to remain single, but if you can't handle it, get married. Get married. Drop that into your thinking. I don't charge by the way, for services, you can call my secretary and maybe we can schedule a ceremony, all right? Paul, what do you think about singleness? Tempting situation. 
You will be tempted, understand that, but you will as a married individual also. And then the fourth thing, and now we've reached the apex of it all. This is the climax, this is the crescendo moment, all right? Singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. Wrong perception. And your lack of raised hands indicated that you have been victimized by this as well. Too many times the church has presented the concept of the gift of singleness. And it is a gift, is it not? Paul referred to it in verse 7 as a gift from God. The gift of singleness, we have defined it incorrectly as the God-given ability to live my entire lifetime in a fulfilled state without a wife. Or, if the guy defining it is a little more crass, the God-given ability to be fulfilled throughout a lifetime without a sexual relationship. We have even come to call it the gift of celibacy. Now, here's the problem. If the gift of singleness is a gift that God gives to a select few, but not to the majority, God-given ability to live a fulfilled life without a husband or wife, and you are single, and you don't have the gift, and 850 of you indicated you don't, two of you think you do. So for the 850 of you who don't, you are then, follow my logic, God gives a gift to a few people to live a fulfilled life apart from marriage, you are not married. Therefore, conclusion, I am doomed to an unfulfilled life until I get that ring on my finger. I would suggest to you that we have misdefined the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is not, and the context of this passage makes it very clear, the God-given ability to live in a grass hut Wearing a tutu with a bone in your nose with a bunch of headhunters for the rest of your life without a wife, husband. That is not the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness, you listening carefully, is a state of existence which all of you are enjoying right now. The gift of singleness is a state of existence that you are enjoying right now, given the fact that you are not encumbered with the responsibilities of raising a family. You are free, and you ought to celebrate your freedom to the full, to the max, while you can. Because for most of you, the day will come when you will forfeit that gift and enter into the gifted state of existence we call marriage. But right now, you are experiencing the gifted state of existence the Bible calls singleness. Hallelujah! What I would give sometimes, what I would give sometimes to trade places with you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love my dear wife of 15 years now and my two children, and they are everything to me. I'm not trying to in any way minimize my commitment to my family. God has blessed me incredibly with a David and an Ashley and my dear wife Becky, and I wouldn't trade them for anything, not for anything, but there are times when I am envious of the freedom that you have that I do not have. What we have done in the church has made singleness a stigma. A stigma. 
Most churches have their traditional singles group, right? In my church in Burbank, where I was youth pastor for many years, you know what we called them? The pears and spares class. Is that brutal? The pears and spares class. That's brutal. And we gave them a little classroom upstairs next to the broom closet. Threw an old couch in there. And they met together. And you know what they did? They had Bible studies, but let's be honest, for most of the time they sat on the couch together moaning and groaning about how unfulfilled they are and how lonely they are because they're single. And a big night was Friday night because that's when they got to go miniature golfing. And that's what we've done to the singles in our churches. And we give them names that speak of a stigma. How would you like to walk in to your church on a Sunday morning? Somebody bumps in you and says, what Sunday school class do you attend? And you say, the pears and spares class. That's brutal. I've often wanted to walk into a class like that and say, if all you do is moan and groan about being single, why don't you just get married? But it never seems to happen. And in many churches, now be honest with me, you know this is true in many cases, right? We would never publish it in the bulletin. But in our thinking, it's the singles group where all the social misfits and undesirables end up. And you ought to hear the little old ladies. You start pushing 30 years of age and you're not married. They get in the corner, the little old ladies, and they whisper, What's wrong with him? we got to help this poor guy out. And they invite you over to dinner, right? And they invite some poor, sweet, little, unsuspecting girl to dinner. And they spray perfume around the room and they put on soft, mellow music and they dim the lights and they light the candles. Is that true? We have made it a stigma. And we come up with titles like Old Maid. Old Maid. I defy you to find that term in the Bible. In the Bible I read about not old maids, but single servants. And we have done a disservice to the singles in our community by putting them in little... little infested classrooms next to a broom closet and put a golf club in their hands or a bowling ball when all the while they ought to be elevated as you ought to be elevated as the backbone of the church every church I know is understaffed people needed for the Sunday school people needed for the Awana group it ought to be the singles in the church that fill all of those positions because they do not have the encumbrance of a family. They're free seven nights a week, like you were, to go on a missions conference without any problem whatsoever in your scheduling. I couldn't do that. I was involved in a minor degree down in Ukaipa, but I couldn't go down there three nights out of the week. I have a family. So my level of involvement is minimized by that, not yours. You can move down there. You can throw a sleeping bag on Todd Arnett's floor and sleep down there and work with the people and go to church and be on the campus and all of that. And there's part of me, quite frankly, that is envious. Because I'd love to do that too, but I can't do it. I'm preparing to take my family over to Israel for a semester so I can study there at the Institute, like some of you have done and will do for a semester. i got to plan two years in advance to do that. Spring of 1994, to move a family of four to the Middle East. 
I got to plan that far in advance to get everything arranged here and everything arranged with my family and my home and the expense of flying a family of four over there. You could go in January if you wanted. You know that? You could just leave chapel today, say, hey, Israel, that would be an awesome experience. Walk into Bookman's office. I'm going in January. You're out of here. I got to plan two years in advance. You have freedom that I can only fantasize about. You are experiencing a gifted state. And Paul outlines three reasons. Let me show them to you. We'll bring this to a conclusion. They're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Beginning at verse 25, he really lays out six reasons why you ought to sing and celebrate and cheer and chant your singleness. Six reasons. I only have time to give you three of them. But you ought to consider this. And your whole perspective, because I know what happens around here. Wow Week is probably your nemesis, some of you, right? You come to Wow Week, and I know how it works with some of the guys and some of the guys. You get the zoomer lens out. Wow Week. And you're scoping out the territory, and in the back of your mind, you are haunted by this thought. I got four years. If I don't find him or her in four years, I'm doomed. I'm doomed to live single the rest of my life. Poor me. Woe is me. And to rub salt into the wound of it all and I don't have the gift. So I'm plunged into despair. When you ought to put that zoomer lens away and absolutely celebrate. Because you can go to Wow Week, I can't. Unless I bring the whole family. Now, let me show this to you. (laughs) Three reasons. Number one, the relentless pressure of living in a fallen world. The relentless pressure of living in a fallen world. Verse 25. Concerning virgins, unmarried people, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. Here's his opinion. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is, Are you bound to a wife? That's me. Don't seek to be released. So I'm not going to leave chapel and file for divorce, even though I secretly envy you once in a while. But if you are released from a wife, don't seek a wife. Given the present distress in a fallen world. What do you mean by that? I picked up the daily news this morning. You ready? This morning. This is just today as of two hours ago. Quote, rise in satanic activity in Sacramento. Quote, another threat of global warning, this time issued from a place in Boulder, Colorado. Quote, allegations of sex harassment for Clarence Thomas. He's being considered for the Supreme Court, in case you don't know who that is. Quote, pipe bomb exploded in Universal City. Quote, 16-year-old girl shot out of the front seat of her car in Lakewood. Quote, Terry Anderson videotape decrying the stalemate of the current hostage crisis in Lebanon. i got to raise a family in this kind of environment. Do you have any idea what kind of pressure that is to hold my bouncy baby three-year-old on my lap and wonder what kind of world she's going to grow up in? Quote, and I mean, this adds the insult to the, what kind of world are we living in? Quote, Raiders lose. I mean, what kind of world are we in? i got to raise a family in this. And it's changing so rapidly. My little girl's three. What will it be like when she's your age? 
That haunts me at night. Because I'm responsible. I brought her into this world. Given the fact that we are living in a world that has relentless pressure because it is a fallen place, 5.2 billion totally depraved individuals living in close proximity to one another in biosphere one, and I've brought a family into it. You do not have that pressure. Can't even relate to it. You don't know what it is to hold your own flesh and blood on your lap and wonder about the world they're growing up in. Second thing he said was this, recurring preoccupations. Relentless pressure, recurring preoccupation. Verse 32, I want to be free from concern. It's the whole goal of this chapel. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. One who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. A woman who is unmarried and a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, how she may be Holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Do you have any idea how many things I did last week? Teaching classes here, preparing for classes here, preparing for Ukaipa, driving down to Ukaipa, and a whole variety of other things. But do you know what the most significant thing was I did last week? The most significant thing I did last week, given all of that activity, occurred on Wednesday night when I took my 10-year-old boy to the Dodger game. Nothing eclipses that in importance. Fireworks night, right? We watch the Dodgers get battered from pillar to post by the San Diego Padres, and then they cleared the bleachers, and we went down and sat on center field, right on the dewy grass in center field, my boy and me, watching a fireworks extravaganza. And I looked at 50,000 people crammed into that stadium watching the fireworks, and I thought to myself, sitting here on this grass in center field with my boy. That is what life is all about for me. But not you. You don't have that pressure. You are free from the concern of raising two children. You are free from the pressure of meeting the needs of a husband or a wife. For many of you, the most significant thing you did was drive down to Ukaipa and prepare for the Friday night rally. You ought to celebrate the fact that you had that opportunity. Oh, I love my family. I wouldn't trade them for anything. But I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been single and I have been married. And in all honesty, I love both states of existence equally. It's a matter of trade-offs. Each has its privileges. Each has its disadvantages. And both are to be celebrated as a God-given gift to you. And then one more. Resulting permanence of marriage. Why should you... Celebrate your singleness because of the resulting permanence of marriage. Verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But, in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Yeah, I think Paul had the Spirit of God. She ought to consider remaining single. Because when you get married, divorce is not an option for you. Jesus Christ did not permit divorce because of irreconcilable differences or because the guy turns out to be an alcoholic or the guy starts punching the daylights out of you. Paul allowed for separation, but Jesus nowhere allowed for divorce except for one thing, and that is hard-hearted, recurring, non-repentant immorality. Other than that, when you enter into a marriage relationship, you have made a decision for life. And you ought to consider that decision very carefully before you make it. 
You do not have that concern. You are free right now. Well, one last thought. This may sound like it's coming out of left field and totally unrelated, but it is very much related. One last thought. Your celebration of your singleness, among everything else we've talked about, ought to release you from the slavery, the pressure that we experience around here concerning the whole issue of dating. Explain what I mean. True or false? You spend five minutes with a guy in a corral and the rumors spread like wildfire. You're engaged. True or false? Such a pressure put upon this little pressure cooker of a bubble we live in to get married, to link up. You can't spend 45 seconds at a soccer game talking to a member of the opposite gender around here without people raising an eyebrow and going, oh, oh, oh. Right? If we really had a handle on our singleness, we ought to celebrate the fact that we are free to date anyone we want, whenever we want, just as friends. What's the matter with a guy and a girl just being friends with absolutely no future goals in mind? I go out with you because I like being with you, period. So, in my closing one minute... I have decided to give the Masters College what I have come to call the Emancipation Proclamation. A decree. I, Duilio Sergio Bertolini, according to the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a professor in good standing at the Masters College, do hereby proclaim that for the balance of the school year, 1991-92, the students at the Master's College are free to date one another at will. You, the students of this fine institution of higher education, are hereby commissioned to enjoy indescribably good times together as you establish new friendships, deepen existing ones, experience the wonder of getting to know one another, Build and share memories together, challenge one another, talk together, eat together, laugh together, and perhaps even cry together. And no one on this campus will be permitted under any circumstances to read any more into it than two individuals exercising their freedom as Americans to spend time together. to spend time together with no strings attached. And I hereby proclaim that the level of friendship to which these dating relationships may or may not attain is nobody else's darn business but their own. So there. This proclamation will become enforced in exactly 10 minutes on this, the 7th day of October, 1991. Celebrate your singleness and have a blast. How many of you are single? How many of you right now, right now, have the gift of singleness? Let me see your hands. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You that You have abundantly blessed and gifted our lives. And forgive us, Father, if we have ever looked upon the gift of singleness that You have given us 
as in any way a negative thing. How that must hurt you to create a gift and give a gift only to have some of your people despise the gift. Forgive us. I pray that the result of this morning together will be to celebrate the gift. A celebration of singleness. Not just wasting our time going bowling, but investing our time without the encumbrance of a family and changing the world. We're grateful for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.